And with that heart, we want to go into the scriptures today. Today's scripture passage is a little longer, but I would like you to turn with me and stay with me throughout the whole time we're together in this passage to 1 Samuel chapter 1. And the passage is a little long, but I would like to read it all because we will be going over the entire section this morning. It's from 1 Samuel chapter 1, and we're going to go all the way to chapter 2 to Hannah's prayer. And so if you have found it, please rise with me. If you have a pew Bible, it is on page 211. Hear now the word of the Lord. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zaphim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. And the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away, went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull 
and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as long as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken into pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. My friends, this is the inerrant, infallible word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Almighty, gracious Father, since our whole salvation depends upon our true understanding of your holy word, grant to all of us that our hearts, being free from worldly things, may hear and understand your holy word with all diligence and faith, that we may rightly understand your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all our hearts, to your praise and honor through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I am very excited to go through this book with you all over, you know, God knows how long, right? God does, though. But we now live in an age where the assault against womanhood, and in particular motherhood, is in full force. It's many of our liberal circles, perhaps, but it's many of our circles, where it's not even something that you can even debate, let alone disagree with. They'll say something like, the debate is closed. Trans women are women. Also, you can't say pregnant women because that would be transphobia, so we should say things like gestational parent. In fact, perhaps a better term they might suggest for women would be persons with cervixes. This sheer madness is being protected under the guise of inclusivity and tolerance. It's only that they won't include or tolerate anything that goes against their ridiculous creeds and doctrines. And that's exactly what they are. They are doctrines, ideologies, philosophies, and they have creeds, they have manifestos, and they are religious persuasions. It has always been. And until the Lord Jesus comes again, it always will be a fight for the truth if you're a Christian. Christians are to hold on to the doctrines that are in line with the truth. And so the common criticism that you might receive, why do you care so much about all this? Or why can't you just let us be? 
or let this be is not valid. If someone came and started to argue with me about the color red actually being green, I would also fight against that change. Red is red. Green is green. I would fight against it not only because pragmatically speaking, you're thinking about the havoc it would raise on the roads, not only pragmatically speaking, but I would fight against it because truth matters. If someone wanted to change 2 plus 2 to equal 5, I would also fight against that. Not only because you wouldn't have any transaction or equation or even bridges that would stay up, anything pragmatic, but because truth matters. When Pilate faced Jesus, he asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And in exchange, in that exchange, Jesus would tell Pilate that his kingdom was not of this world. And Pilate responds by saying, oh, so you are a king. You're telling me you're a king. And this is Jesus's words in John 18. You say that I am a king for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Why is truth important? From two plus two to red being red to a woman being female because all truth is God's truth. After Jesus responds to Pilate, however, Pilate retorts back with a very famous but ignorant line. You may know it as creed et veritas, which in Latin is translated to what is truth. What is truth is how he retorted back after Jesus responded. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Creed es veritas. And now we forever remember him whom Jesus suffered under. Maybe he thought he was intellectual or his philosophical prowess was superior by saying, Kid es veritas, what is truth? But when you asked what two plus two equals, and I say two plus two equals four, and then you turn around saying, well, what is two plus two equal? And doing some sort of mic drop afterwards doesn't actually make you smart because the answer to Kid S. Veritas is verbum Dei. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Christians listen to the word of God. In John 1.1, 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Word is from the word logos, where we get logia, like sayings, and we get the word logic. There is no scholar worth their salt that won't tell, tell you that words come from somewhere. You don't just make up words. We call that babble. Words are intelligible because they come from somewhere prior, just like logic comes from logos. All of our words come from a source, and that source has a source, and so on. John 1.1 is telling us not what, but who the ultimate source is when Moses says he couldn't when Moses said that he couldn't do what God had told him to do because he wasn't eloquent enough this is how God would respond in Exodus chapter 4 verse 11 the Lord said to him who has made man's mouth who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind is it not I the Lord and God isn't just talking about the physical mouth. He is rhetorically asking Moses, who gave man his words? 
The reason why I right now am saying anything intelligible to you right now, if you understand anything coming out from my mouth, is because of God. Even Pilate, who wanted to argue against God, was able to argue, therefore, because of God. So when people ask, quid est veritas, we have the answer, verbum Dei, the word of God. And this is why we are the church reformed, always reforming according to the word of God. Therefore, we always fight for truth, stand for truth, proclaim the truth. And there is a particular truth that we are being shown here in today's passage. And I am telling you, there is an assault against the truth. And it is on the godly mother. It's not Mother's Day today, but maybe in Mother's Day you can repeat this. And we'll just put it up and I don't have to come up. But once again, our society has tried to trample on and look down on the magnificence of motherhood in many, many ways, through the sexual revolution, through the multiple and especially the recent feminist movements, and now through somehow equating the murder of children to health rights, and it will go on. And as we progress away further and further away from the word of God, is it any wonder that our society falls deeper into disarray and disorder? Mother's Day is something that we celebrate. It was first observed in a Christian church, started by a woman named Anna Jarvis in memory of her own mother, who would begin a national campaign and finally, after a few years, convincing Congress in 1911 to make it a national holiday. Now Mother's Day is observed in over 40 countries in the world. In 1928, 1928, that's almost 100 years ago, there was a pastor by the name of W.L. Caldwell. He preached the message on Mother's Day. And I just want to read you an excerpt. 1928, this is an excerpt of his passage on Mother's Day. Well, may we pause to pay honor to her who, after Jesus Christ, is God's best gift to men mother. It was she who shared her life with us when as yet our members were yet unformed. Into the valley of the shadow of death she walked that we might have the light of life. In her arms was the garner of our food and a soft couch for our repose. There we nestled in the hour of pain. There was the playground of our infant glee. Those same arms later became our refuge and stronghold. It was she who taught our baby feet to go and lifted us up over the rough places. Her blessed hands piled the needle day by day and by night to make our infant clothes. She put the book under our arms and started us off to school. But best of all, she taught our baby lips to lisp the name of Jesus and told us first the wondrous story of the Savior's love. The pride of America is its mothers. There are wicked mothers like Jezebel of old. There are unnatural mothers who sell their children into sin. There are sin-cursed, rum-soaked, and abandoned mothers to who their motherhood is the exposure of their shame but I am glad to believe that there are comparatively few in this class. How would that speech go in today's world? In this self-obsessed, me-centered, I-can-do-no-wrong society of today, is this the case now where we can say what Caldwell said? but I am glad to believe that there are comparatively few in this class. There is a fight, and the fight is for our very lives. According to the Guttmacher Institute, there are over 98 abortions every hour in this country. Since 1973, that's 49 years since Roe v. Wade was passed, we have had over 61 million reported abortions. 
That's over 61 million babies dismantled, dismembered, and destroyed in what God intended to be the safest place for a new life. This is shocking, but shouldn't it be a surprise to those that understand that when the truth about women is assaulted, motherhood is devastated. Caldwell will say that no nation <clears throat> is ever greater than its mothers, for they are the makers of its men. There is an old rabbinical saying. This saying is very popular. Even Lou Wallace would reference it in his 1880 novel, Ben-Hur. But the saying goes like this. <clears throat> God could not be everywhere, and therefore he made mothers. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12 to 15, this is the ever-hated passage by egalitarians. And this is what 1 Timothy 2 writes. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. What does that mean? What does verse 15 mean? That she will be saved. And is that the right word? And if you look at the Greek word, it's sozo, which means salvation. So that is the right translation. But this obviously doesn't mean that she will attain her eternal salvation from bearing children. But it does mean that her honor and dignity, purpose and happiness isn't found in her preaching in the solemn assembly, but bearing children, fulfilling God's intention for most women. And I say most women because there are exceptions that the Bible talks about that we have gone over. In 1 Corinthians 7, it tells us that some women will be called to be single, not married, and not mothers. Some will not be able to bear children, but it is for a purpose that God has intended. However, for the vast majority, and this is what God is showing us, and this, has, this is what has been taught for, for over 4,000 years to God's people, it's only in the last 50 years or so that we think we know better. And are women happier for it? And I've shared this with the Edify group that I've read, and I, I believe that statistic is going up. I've read that 42% of women over 45, the age of 45, in the Western world are on antidepressants. The Netherlands, and this is supposed to be one of the happiest places on earth according to the World's Happiness Report and one of the most egalitarian places, saw its antidepressant prescriptions double from the years 1996 to 2012. Psychologists in the Western world are alarmed because they are seeing this trend that is not tapering down. There is no end. There is no end date to these psychiatric medications. What God has ordained, the contributions that women make to society, is not low, it is not second place, but necessary and absolutely essential. He has designated men to take point in their families, taking the initial incoming fire, but with no one watching their six, that company is done for. The roles that God has designed for our families and our churches are not interchangeable according to our whims. These are divine priorities. This is jura divino, divine right, which means the failure of the family or church to conform themselves to all things to the revealed will of Christ is at its peril. What women do, what mothers do, are absolutely essential to our families, churches, and societies, and the world. The reason why the people of God exalt mothers is because the scriptures have always exalted motherhood. It started with Eve. The punishment that the woman received for sinning was that her pain and childbearing would be multiplied and she would try to rule over her husband. But after hearing this, Adam, who was given the authority to name every living creature, would then give his wife this name. 
Eve. And Eve means life. And so Paul, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, you're like, what does that mean? That's what it means. Paul's going back to Genesis. Then we see Sarah, who is a true model of faith in God and obedience to her husband. And Peter even affirms this in his letter in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 6. But she was barren and had no child. And that hangs over the Genesis narrative for 10 chapters. The next generation, Isaac and Isaac's wife, Rebecca, she had no children for their first 20 years of marriage until Isaac prayed. And then the generation after that, Rachel, would have massive trauma And there will be drama about her barrenness until she conceived Joseph. By the time we get to the era before Samuel, we have the era of Judges. Now, the the point of the book of Judges is that there was no good judge, not one. The Judges aren't showing us an example to follow, but to show us that even in all our various shortcomings, God's grace abounds. And the greatest of these judges was Samson. And Samson's mother was also barren. She was the wife of a man named Manoah. And Samson was born to a woman who was barren and had no children. It would seem that God would use then barren women to raise up key figures in redemptive history. Even in the New Testament, like using Elizabeth, who was also barren, to give birth to the greatest Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist. However, up to this point in the story, Israel would see no greater victories than what they saw with Samson. But Samson is dead now. The great hero is gone. The country is divided. It's leaderless. The enemies around them, like the Philistines, are getting stronger and stronger. And the nation is getting weaker by the day. And God would choose one final judge in that era to lead his people back to himself. And in order to bear Samuel, God chose a very special woman. And her name was Hannah. Hannah shared in this struggle with barrenness. And it's analogous to almost every new era in the history of God's people. If you're reading the Bible, you'll see this. They begin with nothing. God starts with our total inability as his starting point. Because even our complete helplessness and utter hopelessness, it's no deterrent to God's work. In fact, it's when we are completely without strength, resource, or hope that it is revealed that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, God is with me. And we recognize that God gives us sight when we were once blind so that we may witness God stretching his hand from heaven. But barrenness doesn't only signify emptiness, but it also signifies distress. It was difficult enough for Hannah to be barren, but then to have it rubbed in by Penina. I think it's important for us to know that Elkanah believed in God also, but he also wasn't perfect. He had two wives. And now we see how sin complicates and tarnishes his relationships. He was polygamous. However, he did go to worship God. And this is something absolutely important that we must remember. Abraham wasn't a perfect husband, but his faith was the strength of Sarah. Elkanah wasn't perfect, but his faith was the strength of Hannah. Our spouses may not be perfect, but they must be worshipers of God. This is something repeated in all of Scripture that we are to marry 
believers. This is a divine principle. And that standard has never changed from Deuteronomy chapter 7 to 2 Corinthians 6. That's where we are to start. However, because of sin, the relationship is far from perfect. In fact, it's almost unbearable because even though it's clear that Elkanah showed preferential treatment to Hannah, it was Penina that would provoke her grievously, like it was saying in verse 6. And some people make the mistake of taking this lightly, but I would warn you not to. Year after year, provocation after provocation, it's the constant dripping that will wear away and erode any rock, no matter its size. Her husband would wonder why she wouldn't eat, for isn't he worth more than ten sons? But heavy grief, her heavy grief could not be covered, even by her husband, and it drove her to the presence of God. I'm going to give three points on this, but it's going to be a callback to everything that I've said prior. I'm going to give you the point from verses 9 to 20, and that point is there is freedom in the truth. There's freedom in the truth. After her family ate and drank the sacrificial meal, Hannah rushed to the tabernacle entrance and she began to pray with many tears. Sometimes tears alone can constitute for prayers. In Psalm 6, 8, it says, Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. There was no one Hannah could turn to. Penina would mean to crush her with her cruelty. Elkanah's solace, while well-meant, would give her none. And even the priest Eli couldn't tell the difference between someone obviously in great distress and a drunkard. So she could only turn to the one true God. And I want you to listen to this amazing prayer. O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. She addresses God how? She addresses God as the Lord of hosts. God as commander of the heavenly armies, the cosmic ruler, the sovereign of all power. And why is this significant? It's because she believed that the great and all sovereign God will listen to someone that by any standard is just some obscure woman living where in Ramathaim Zaphim of the hill country of Ephraim. What is that? That's like the almighty, all-knowing creator of the universe would listen to Josephine Schmo of Teaneck, New Jersey, and her problems. Where does she get the reasoning or even the logic to do this? You do this if you know the God of the Exodus. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. This is the freedom that Hannah knew because she knew the truth. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are truly disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. As heavy and grieved as your spirit could be, the freedom that Hannah knew of is that she could pour out her soul before God. The Lord of hosts allows her to do just that because God can handle our tears, our grief, and our sorrow. We are able then to take all the perplexities, all the convolutedness, the sin wrought, and then bring it before Jesus who sets us free. 
And perhaps you thought growing up in church that the Old Testament God and the New Testament God are different. And you don't have the same kind of freedom as you did in the Old Testament or New Testament. You could believe that. But that wouldn't have stopped Hannah. She should be an example for us to remember that in truth, we are free to approach the throne of grace. Which is, by the way, the meaning of her name. Hannah means grace. In Christ, we are free to approach God, and God gives us grace. The psalmist in Psalm 142 says, With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. Hannah recognizes this after the priest gives her a benediction. So then she goes her way and she eats and her face was no longer sad. The next part is from verses 19 to 28 and that point is called the dedication. The dedication. God remembers Hannah, gives her grace like her namesake and she gives birth to a son, and she names him this amazing name, Samuel. And if you have this name, you have a lot to live up to. Because Samuel means two things. It means two things. So that in itself should stand out. L means God, right? And anytime you have a name that ends with L or starts with L, it means God. And this particular name could either have the root Shem or Shama. So Shem, El, means the name of God. But Samuel can also be derived from Shama El, which means to hear or to be heard of God. So the name of God and to be heard of God. And both of these meanings make sense knowing Hannah's story. Now in this section, the primary concern is the fulfillment of Hannah's vow that she made in verse 11. She was to give her son to the work of the Lord, meaning the service at God's tabernacle. Hannah wants to wait until, she, until Samuel has been weaned. And in that time and culture and place, that could be as long as three years. But once that time arrives, she takes Samuel along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah flower, and a skin of wine. All these, including Samuel, was presented as an offering. We'll pay close attention to Hannah's words again, but this time in verse uh, 26 to 28 as she presents Samuel to Eli. O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. Now, the wording here may be a bit confusing, but if you look at the Hebrew, that's why the renditions or the translations, no matter what uh, you know, uh, version you have, is a little bit confusing, but it's trying to do something. But if you look at the Hebrew, she is borrowing a word that Eli said to her in the benediction he gave her. In verse 17, he said this, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. The word for made is from the word sha'al, which is to ask. So literally, you would read the benediction as God in peace, go in peace, excuse me, and the God of Israel shall grant your petition that you have asked of him. And then when Hannah presents Samuel to Eli, she uses this word, Sha'al, four times. So it would have sound, sounded something like this if you read it. For this child I prayed, and Yahweh gave me my Sha'al, which I Sha'al from him, and I also have given back what was Sha'al to Yahweh. All the days he lives, he is one that is Sha'al for Yahweh. That's why the translation that you have is good. The maid is good when it, but when it means to ask. Because when you render it, we see what Hannah has rehearsed then is her worship to God. I shall or asked him or made petition. So the request that she has made from God 
is made over to God. The request that she has made to God is now made over to God and Samuel. Samuel is the Sha'al back over to God. Now Samuel, Hannah, and Elkanah was made for a specific time and purpose from God for his redemptive purpose. And Samuel will go on to be the last judge of Israel to end the period of the judges and the first prophet to usher in the period of kings. This is a very special moment in history, but they also have a purpose in providing a lesson for us. Any parent here who has a covenant child with the church and God should understand that we view our children differently than the world. There's a very famous scene in The Lion King, the movie, where Rafiki, the baboon, right, would play. He actually plays the role of a priest and he anoints the head of Simba and lifts him up for the animal kingdom to see because the ceremony is actually about anointing the next king. But what this is mimicking is a real thing that people in history have done to anoint royalty across many cultures, including Queen Elizabeth, by the way. But the being made over to God is more than just an anointing. It is a giving over. And this is what we understand our infant baptisms to be. Through their baptism, we acknowledge that they are holy because of their believing parents. They are holy, like in 1 Corinthians 7. They are, in a sense, our children that have been baptized are, in a sense, royalty because being holy means we are God's children. And in Romans 8, 17, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Infant baptism is a big deal, but there's more that Hannah understood. Samuel was made over to God because God had made over her petition. She dedicated her son and gave him up to God because of what God did for her. And this points us to how Christ was made over to us so that we could be made over to him. And, and our giving up of our children to God is because God gave his only son for us. So in baptism, we not only recognize the holiness, grant, the holiness God grants a believer's child, but also the giving up our children to the Lord. And this is a major theme in the Bible, because Jesus Christ gave himself up for us. We are now able to give up ourselves to him as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, once in darkness now made over to the eternal light of Christ. So for the Christian, their baptism is a recognition of, yes, being heirs with Christ and also giving up ourselves to God as living sacrifices, eternally living in the freedom that truth brings. And the final point is the kingdom. This is from chapter 2, verse 1 to 10. The kingdom. So we have gone from the closed womb to now what Hannah sees. The kingdom of God. Hannah prays again, and this time it's a prayer of praise. And I'll walk us through the prayer briefly before I go on to the explanation of it. But there are three basic sections to the prayer. Verses 1 to 3, 4 to 8. And 9 to 10. I'm going to read it again because it's so good. But Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. 
We see how Hannah starts with elation at the Lord's particular salvation in her life. Verses 1 to 3 is a beautiful prayer of praise that acknowledges and praises the Lord for relief and blessing that God has granted her. This prayer starts with her own experience of God's mercy and favor. It starts with, my heart, my horn, my mouth, because I rejoice. It's deeply personal because God is personal. And this is a personal salvation that she has received. In verses 4 to 8, we see God's character being extended even more broadly now. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up from the poor. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. This is God's character consistent with what he showed her personally is also consistent with what he will show the world. Because that's just the way the Lord is. He is righteous in all his ways, and that's what we can rely on when that gets back down to the personal as well. People will always ask this question when we talk about evangelism. What about the person that never heard of Jesus when they die? How is that fair? But that's not what Hannah would say. And that's what Hannah sees. Hannah realizes, what Hannah realizes is that the God who showed up to her personally is the same God generally. God does not change from the micro to the macro. In Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Malachi 3, 6, for I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. And this is why his word never changes. It never fails. Isaiah 48, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And this is what Hannah was saying. I was in darkness and grief, but the Lord was my strength. My womb was closed, dead, and barren. But God opened it, gave me life, and made me fruitful. I was poor, but now I am rich. And this is because that's who God is. Verses 9 to 10, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, but he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And here is the final result. The deliverance of God's covenanted people, his elect and the destruction of his enemies where he judges to the ends of the earth. And Hannah knows that there will be an anointed, a Messiah, a king that will accomplish this. Hannah recognizes in her prayer that her life isn't just some TV drama where when it's all over, people just move on. You can't just look at her life and go, What's the big deal? Because we saw that this is a manifestation of how God will bring his kingdom. What God did through Hannah, he is showing the world how he will ultimately bring his kingdom in all its fullness. This is a foretaste of what is to come. And this is not even up to scale. As glorious as this was for Hannah, she knew that this was just a small fraction of the glory yet to be revealed. And this is what we need to remember as Christians. The deliverance, the personal deliverance we, we receive, as glorious as it is, 
is only a small fraction of what is to come. If I were to give an example, it would be like a married woman who wears her ring or wedding band. There's usually a precious stone on it, and it's made with precious metal. It's beautiful. People celebrate it when you get engaged to be married. But as glorious as that ring is, it is only meant as a symbol of love that her husband has promised her and has for her. That's why you wouldn't see her sell her ring or just leave it anywhere, but it will be kept close to her. The ring symbolizes a deeper reality of the treasure she has, the love of her husband. The church has been given two sacraments, signs and symbols, reminding us of her bridegroom's promise and love for her. And that's baptism and communion. Perhaps the husband has to go on a long journey or business trip and won't be back for a while. Then the ring is a sign and reminder of his love for her. What we recognize is that God has given us his children, many tokens of his love. And I pray that we could be as wise as Hannah and recognize to give it back to God in holy worship, looking to the eternal joy we have with our Lord because that's who God is. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the amazing grace, the gift of your Son, Jesus, that we have received in our lives. Help us now to live rightly as living sacrifices, rendering to you all that we have in holy worship that is acceptable to you. Let's take this time to pray, and let's give up to the Lord as we recognize through the Holy Spirit what we have been given in Christ, a prayer like she has thanking Him and praising Him, exalting Him, being in awe at His wondrous and mighty works in our lives and in the world, and lifting up to Him all that we have. Let's pray.